Jesus of Nazareth, was he really the son of God, or maybe just an alien among us? Could patterns in British field be attempts of communications of unknown beings? Will 13 skulls reveal the answer about life, the universe, and everything? Join us on a mission already in progress. Hi, hello and welcome to Digging Up Ancient Aliens. This is the podcast where we examine the TV show Ancient Aliens. Do the claims hold water to an archaeologist? Or are there better explanations out there? I'm your host, Frederick, and this is episode 6, The Mission, part 2. So, we're still trying to figure out why the aliens were, are, here. If you missed... Part 1, you could just hit pause and go back right now. Or stay, you have you missed a few things, but nothing that would make the narrative here fall completely apart. So if you don't remember or haven't gotten around to listening to part 1, this episode is trying to explain why the aliens came here. The main theory I figured out is that the aliens need gold and come here to mine said gold. The whole episode is mostly centered around aliens creating humans as mining slaves, since they didn't want to do all that hard mining work. It's easier to genetically breed a new race to get some slaves. They have not really presented any other ideas than the mining theory, so they seem they're sticking to that. Remember that sources, resources, and reading suggestions are attached to the show notes to this episode, and of course you can find them on our website, diggingupancientaliens.com. There you can find contact info if you find any mistakes or have a few suggestions. If you like the podcast, I would really appreciate if you left one of those fancy five-star reviews. I thank you by name in the next available episode. But let's dig down and continue. Okay, so so when we took a break in the last episode, they were talking about Huang Di's birth and and a bit of a bit different version from the one in an earlier episode. So if you don't remember, Huang Di's mother was picking fruit on a mountain and it's clear blue skies and one of the sky gods saw her and come, came down in form of a thundercloud. She got scared and fainted and when she woke up, the sky was clear and of course she was pregnant. You know, just as the Jesus story, not my words, the episode's <laughs> words there. But if you know the Jesus story, you know that the birth of Jesus is, well, it's only mentioned in Luke and Matthew to start with. In Luke, we have the angels who comes down and speaks with Mary. And in Matthew, 
we have the angels not speaking to Mary but trying to calm down Joseph for obvious reasons. Neither of these accounts contain any dragons, mountains or thunderclouds, to my knowledge. And I went back and reread them just to be, be sure if there's nothing I had missed. So I would say that except for angels coming from the sky, that the stories are quite different in quite many different ways. And if you remember, this is a different story uh, compared to the one we heard earlier about Huang Di. Then he came down in the belly of the dragon and um, did a lot of things, hunting people or hunting monsters, creating writing, all of that. We skip over that and we dig down in a bit more in the details surrounding this story in episode three. So if you haven't checked that one out yet, you, you should. Maybe not now, but you can do that later. But this part is basically filler, I assume, to get to the one hour and 30 minutes mark that they've decided to have for this season. We won't really talk more about Huang Di or Jesus for that matter, or at least in this episode. We will we'll revisit Jesus in the next one, actually. So, spoilers. No. <laughs> Uh, but we have we have Arthur D. Horn, who goes on about God's breed with humans to get a race to control. So, so I guess that's a bit of the tie-in for the Jesus, maybe. We have, again, Childress come in saying that myths are based on something real. Again, we're trying to rewrite the dictionary a little bit. I'd argue that the word myth implying that parts or the whole story is not necessarily true. Many would example call the Norse stories about the North gods for myth. They are not intended to be taken uh, literary uh, as a true account, while the stories in the Bible are supposed to be taken literal as historical events, and therefore would create a bit of a fuss if you would call that a myth. Uh, I would maybe... Uh, argue for the latter, but anyway, could there be a train? Could there be a grain of truth to some of the myth? Sure, but saying that all myth that Childress seems at least to imply here are based on reality would mean that he have redefined the whole word myth. But we go on talking about different themes in myths, such cataclysms of some kinds. Usually there's floods or fires or something else that's really scary. The show then brings up that in the Hebrew Bible, God punishes the Hebrews by a great flood. It's a bit selected from the show. If you read the Old Testament, you will encounter a lot of punishments from God. I started to compile a list with different events, but it started to grow, grew, grew a bit too long for our show here. So maybe I will finish it up and add at a bonus section at diggingupancientalias.com at a later point in time. But they continue from this on to the thing that you can start to suspect that they're fishing after, the flood myth. And they're talking about that there are numerous mythical texts containing these different myths about floods. And they don't specify where, who, from, where, or really anything. They just say that there's plenty of them. Trust us on this one. 
And I do know that there's a lot, uh, quite a few flood myths floating around. Are they all identical? Well, no, not really. Uh, they are not identical. Things differ. Some are, some of course, are more alike than others. And would we really think that it's really that strange that that concept like a um, flood might repeat all over the world, especially in areas that's prone to flooding. We generally don't see this type of myth in areas that don't have floods. For example, in Central Africa, there's none story whatsoever. Same in deserts all over or in very mountainous areas. The floods myth are really rare. But closer to the coastlines? Yep, there's usually plenty of them instead. And why shouldn't it be? Floods are quite scary phenomenon even today. Imagine what it might have been thousands of years ago when you couldn't really predict these or even had any sort of way to predict basic weather like we have today, even if we still get mistakes, we're a lot better than controlling our environment than thousands of years ago. And some myths might have inspired later writers, not all. For example, Narragansett and uh, Ojibwa myths are quite different. And these are Native American tribes. I'm sorry for any mispronunciations there, but um, they are quite different even if they're both flood myths. But on the other hand, Ojibwe is closer thematic to the Gilgamesh or Noah stories, but let's compare that to stories from the Popovol or Gylfaginning uh, that differ completely from the others. So yes, there's flood myth from almost all continents, but it would be dishonest to say that they're all the same. Sure, they all contain some sort of flood, Usually some people surviving, maybe angry God. But again, these are not that strange concepts for people back then, really, I'd say at least. We have a folklorist, Thomas Bullard, that talks about how some believe the gods to be interpreted as aliens. And there's usually a rift between them at one point. I mean... Sure, aliens might be perceived as God if they were to visit, but as far as the show has uh, gone, they have not managed to prove that the gods, in fact, are aliens in the stories. They don't even say why the aliens would be upset with the humans. (laughs) For example, if the gods see a lot of sins or as one, the, the Egyptian story... Um, the gods were just annoyed with the people because they were too noisy. But why would the aliens want to drown the whole world? Early in the episode, the aliens actually had nuclear weapons. Would it be not more efficient and easier to use them than flooding everything in hope that the things they want to survive survives? But during the end of the flood myth portion of the episode, they, they start to display pictures from Talan Fikokotitlan, that was under control of the Toltecs. The site was founded around 400 BCE and was used up to around 1150 CE. 
Then I almost made a spit take since the narrator comes in and say, quote, Take, for example, the Aztec and the Mayans. By the year 1500 CE, they had vanished. But why? Was there a natural disaster of some kind or another outerworldly explanation? And I start to wonder, are, are they serious? Are they really serious here? By phrase here, they, are they going to completely gloss over the Spanish conquest and the fall of Tenochtitlan in 1521? Or maybe Cortes is an alien according to the AA people? Right, Jorin, it depends on how you maybe define the word alien. I know that some sense alien can mean somebody from abroad, but all right, let's see what they really have to say here. So we have Childress here again that's saying, Somehow it all came down to a catalytic event. The world as it now went under. Tidal wave washing over the land and megalithic buildings stop. In Peru, giant's blocks are abandoned all at once after quarrying. And yeah, they're going to gloss over the Spanish context. (laughs) Conquest completely, apparently. I'm not sure why. We don't really see any, any tidal waves or things like that that would have covered the whole Mesoamerica or South America for that part too. Even the Aztec, there are some uh, apocryphic stories about gods returning from the sea that apparently was part of the Spanish actually making the contest conquest so quick and rapid there but they ignored that part completely i would have thought that they would use that well uh, the aliens had seen them and come down to warn them but um no we instead move to the mayan calendar so according to scholars the show claims the calendar started on august 11 3114 bce And the first calendar cycle ends on 2012, December 21. Why? Did the Mayans know something about our future? And I find it kind of cute that they're talking about the 2012 event. This show aired back in 2010, so it was relevant back then at least. Now, if you would ask the 2012 people, they they rather keep quiet about that. But um, Childress is talking about the Mayans having knowledge on uh, advanced cataclysmic circles on Earth. They really like that word, cataclysmic. Not really thinking about that, you know, calendars usually are in cycles. Maybe Childress is so woke that time is a flat line for him. But at the same time, I, I... can picture him under a blanket every new year shaking uh, that the time is coming to an end okay let's let's move on that we can talk a bit about the mayan calendar i actually i actually do remember back in 2010 2012 when the fuss was maybe the biggest about this i actually did try to stay up there on december 21st to celebrate the end of the world but then I remember that Sweden and Mexico are about six hours apart. So I went to bed instead. And there was no end of the world or well. If you ask some of these 2012 people, the world actually did end, but in a spiritual sense. The spirit left our world. So it's basically dead to them, at least. 
it's a little anecdote um, <laughs> at least, but we have to remember that the Mayans did not have just one calendar like us. They actually had several of them. So the two that was most used in Mesoamerica, the Holy calendar that have 260 days, each one with a unique day name, Y260. We're not entirely sure about this, but it actually ties quite nicely with human pregnancy. And that could be the origin of the calendar, a quite basic biological one. And I find it quite cute in a sense that they based this on the human pregnancy cycle. We then have the solar calendar that most of Mesoamerica, well, except for the Mayans, actually used. It had a year-bearer system. Um, the Mayan solar calendar is called the HAB. And it has 18 months with 20 days in each month. The month had individual names and the dates are numbered, just as ours. But if you do some quick math here, we have only 360 days here. The Mayans actually had a 19th month with five days that was called Vayeb. And it's viewed as an unpredictable time and quite dangerous. You didn't want to do anything important here. You wanted to stay indoors and wait for this scary, unpredicted time to just go by. We then actually get to the famous calendar the Mayan long count calendar, the one that they are talking about in this episode. And as their society grew more complex, so so did their need to also record history and different events that took part. So the Mayans, to solve this, did create a long count calendar. If we look back at the uh, year bearer system you could only record events in a 52 year cycle and then you started over at zero basically which make it quite tricky if you want to record something more than 52 years ago it's easy to that the day starts to sync together and that's a problem for archaeologists today to figure out what year it actually happened because you can't use the year bearer system but this long count calendar did start, as the show say, on August 11, 3114 BCE, or rather at the 13th Bactun. So the long count calendar is divided in kins, or as in English, days. And 20 kins, or days, makes one month or vinyl. So 360 days is a year or two. Here's a bit weird. Um, for some reasons, the Maya did use 360 instead of 365 as their basis for a year in a long count calendar. We're not entirely sure for the reason behind this, but it's actually how it is it wouldn't help a farmer, but maybe it's some s- spiritual uh, reason behind this. But we then move on to 20 years, that's what they called a cartoon, and 400 years, then we have a baktun. 
So the Maya start date for the calendar is in the 13th Bactonth, so 13 times 400 years. And we are now in what they believed, the fourth creation. In the Maya creation story you have actually three attempts before the gods got it right. But the years still start at zero, but we, the fourth creation, start at Bactun number 13. The Maya also used the distance number to keep dates neater on stelas, especially, and to discuss multiple events in history. They also have a calendar that they call something like the Nine Lords of the Night, which, which could be, or it rather, it is a lunar calendar. Uh, and it's quite complex, and the name is actually a bit misleading due to earlier scholar and research. It would be actually more correct to say that the sky was divided up in nine sections, who in turn then were ruled by nine different lords. So it's referring to the nine section and not really the lords themselves, even if they, they sounds a bit cooler. Uh, the nine lords of the night, that would be my death metal band name. It's actually quite catchy in a way. The narrator then chimes in with that aliens left behind the Mayan calendar as an ancient warning device maybe? Could they have left other warning devices? Why was it important for ancient civilization to track the stars? Well, for one thing, if, if you are an agrarian society, it's quite important to know when to take care of the fields, to sow, to harvest and everything surrounding this and you need to keep track of the different periods and when it's best to do the different things. So of course keeping track of the sun would become quite important for this society. And would it really be that strange to assume that keeping track of the sun maybe evolves into tracking the stars? There's not really need for aliens to explain why they have astronomy. Without astronomy the agrarian society would would have a quite tricky time to evolve. Um, so while they are talking about why people would look up in the sky that long ago, we, we actually got a quick shot of Stonehenge. And I started to wonder, will we actually have our first European alien? We then meet Robert Scrooge again, uh, who's talking about megalithic structures in general. And that we often find them aligned astronomically to the stars or to the sun. And he claimed that Stonehenge is basically an observatory. And he's asking if it could have been used for religious activities or just stargazing. We then move on to, we actually meet Sarah Seeger, who's a quite accomplished astronomer and even has her own equation. I, I can't really find that she should have any ties to the alien movement. But anyway, Seeger says basically that it's not a surprise for us that people in the past ha- had this knowledge. And I couldn't agree more with somebody in this series. Um, it actually would be almost more weird if they didn't have this kind of level of knowledge back then. But the narrator jumps in and breaks off Seeger's thoughts there and moves on to saying, Why was the ancient man so fixated on the sky? Was it to help farmers or another more profound 
purpose. Could they have been an alien GPS? We then move on to Napta Playa, Egypt, and one of the stone circles there that's actually part one of the oldest astronomical sites and was found as late as 1974 by Fred Wendorf. And as I said, it's a small stone circle. And then for the first time in this episode, we meet uh, Mr. Bouval. And he talks a bit about this stern stone circle and that they're using strange rocks. How strange? He don't specify. And the date of this circle is to 5000 BC. So it's a thousand years older than Stonehenge. And we are supposed to be impressed by this, I assume. But they leave out the Manjadra uh, on Malta that was built in the 4th millennium BCE. Or maybe the Gothic Circle, who, where the earliest date would be around 4900 BCE. Yes, um, the circle at Napta Playa is probably the oldest remaining evidence we have. But at the same time, it's not built in a time or in a way that would make us really question that the people living there could have made made this. Napta Playa have supported populations of different kinds since at least 10,000 BCE, with evidence of earlier start to pop up around 6,000 BCE. So again, it's not just that this site beamed or appeared all of a sudden from outer space, it's part of a larger area and uh, context and part of a population that lived and evolved there for over thousands of years. And the show goes on saying that the people who built this site must have been very sophisticated astronomers that were tracking stars over thousands of years ago. Well, to track stars, you don't really need that advanced equipment. Sure, a telescope will make it a lot easier to track the stars and measure and see what's going on. And of course, a space telescope would make it even easier. But you could do it basically by putting a rock where the star goes up and one where it goes down and track how it moves with sticks and other rocks. All you need is a lot of patience and a good set of eyes, basically. Also, not so much light, but in a time before electricity. Well, (laughs) if we go back to episode one, uh, the ancient aliens theorists thought that there was a lot of electricity in during this era. Anyway, we didn't have that much light pollution, which of course makes it easier to see and track stars. We then move to the year 1994, and the narrator says that the Nata Playa had gone a greater importance due to Robert Bouvon, uh, our French Lex Luthor, announced a discovery at the Giza Plateau. The Great Pyramid Shaft, we touched on this in episode 1. No, episode 2 it was, sorry. Um, episode 2. And here, and they're not part of a electrical device. No, they're aligned perfectly with the stars in, in the sky. So the sudden shafts align to the belts of Orion and Sirius and the northern ones to the circumpolar stars. As an engineer, he thinks that it's 
basically impossible that they could design a pyramid to or these shafts to meet these stars. And he also proved that the pyramids are laid out in an order to match the Orion's belt. Except for he hasn't. <laughs> they don't really say what the evidence is. And maybe it's non-existent, but Bouval's Orion correlation theory has been mainly or largely debunked. The stars have never really lined up as Bouval claims. If you, of course, as Bouval did in his book, you flip the pyramid upside down and don't tell people that you did, then they sorta, kinda lines up if you, you know, squint a little bit. And for the pyramids to match up with Orion's belt, sure, but anything in three could theoretically also line up. Uh, I'm not really sure uh, here. And the narrator continue, is it a religious or stellar message? Is the Orion's belt the birthplace of stars? Egyptians themselves believe that the gods descended from the stars. Uh, Again, we have this claim that the gods were descended from stars with... There's no trace of it in records outside the ancient alien bubble, really. If we look at Egyptians, water is the thing that brings life and their other creation myths really take part in the great void that themselves say is water, nothing else there really. It's not the sky that would not have made sense for the Egyptian person, because, well, there's not really much life up in the sky, but in water, yeah, there you have life. And from Bouval's um, theory here, we go back to Mesoamerica, and they start to talk about the Cholula Pyramid. The narrative says that it's the largest one in the world and is more than 3,000 years old. And it took 1,400 years to complete. So, all right. The construction started around 200 BCE for well, the first phase. So they're wrong there by about 1,000 years to start with. Then the pyramid was built in four phases and was abandoned before the Spanish came. So this part, they got quite wrong, to be honest. But sure, the, the base of the pyramid makes it the largest pyramid in the world. Not the tallest, that would be still Khufu's Pyramid in Giza. But this is, volume-wise, the biggest one. But Giorgio, move on, even if it doesn't look like much. It is the largest monument ever created by human hands. And the narrator chimes in, originally built by the Olmecs, it was then added on by the Toltec and the Aztec, along with the history of bloodshed. They also had knowledge about the stars, I assume. And we have Michael Cremo chime in. It is interesting to think about what the Aztec people thought about its origin. They did not think it was built for by humans. According to the ancient Aztec tradition, the Cholula pyramid was built by a being they call a giant. If you look at the Aztec cosmology, you'll see that these giants were identified with different celestial objects. The one in particular is identified with the planet Venus. Not to say that 
Cremo here is wrong, but he is quite wrong. The Aztec has nothing to do with the pyramid, really. The pyramid's name really translates to handmade mountain. So if the gods would have been responsible for it, it would not have made sense to basically name it mountain made by man. Creamy, Cremo doesn't specify where he got all of this information, but I have some idea, to be honest. It's not a nice or especially bright place. Anyway, the narrator then jumps in, claiming that both the Aztec and ancient Egypt charted the cosmos thousands of years before European astronomers. Wait, hold up. They... <laughs> These are not cultures that existed at the same time. Even more strange is that the culture was half a world apart. Um, yeah, and a couple of thousands of years too. They are starting to get lazy here, to be honest. And if you didn't think that was crazy, you should hold on to your socks because we have Childress who say, quote, Mainstream archaeologists are telling us that these civilizations around the world, in Americas, on remote Pacific islands, in Asia and Africa and Europe, that they are all disconnected with each other and that there wasn't some contact with South America and Egypt or any of these ancient civilizations. But really, it has to be the other way around. All of these ancient civilizations were connected in some way. Well, well, sure, some cultures have been separated, but yeah, many of them had contact and we actually see this in the records. And it's really dishonest by Childress to paint a picture like this. Childress seems to think that it's impossible for an idea to grow in different locations and at different times. Therefore, everything needs to be connected according to, well, him at last, at least. But to be honest, if you want to build a big building, you would use something hardy to, hard to make it last, like some, for example. You would also want to use a shape that makes it easier to build tall and for it to stand up and don't fall down, such as a triangle. The heavy mass in the bottom and less, of course, at the top. I could agree that it would be strange if we had skyscrapers built with modern materials just popping up in the ancient era, but we don't. We have logic buildings made with tools and knowledge that would have been available to them. But the speaker goes on to say that, uh, that if these sites are connected, how and why? They then show... Uh, the Arizona Lights or the Battle of Phoenix uh, from especially 2005 and 2001 for reasons, well, beyond me at least. But yeah, the, these lights have been quite bunked and most agree that it's explained by the US Army dropping LUU-2B slash B illumination flares in the area. We leaving the pyramids behind while we had them. I'm not entirely sure there, either to fill some time or to show that the civilizations are more connected for reasons. 
beyond me. I'm not sure how these fit in to the mission part, at least of the story. If you have any ideas, let me know your theory and we can see if we can solve this little thing. We then go to Wiltshire, England, the same as for thousands of years. Little stone walls, green fields, and of course an abundance of peace. Home to many sacred sites. And I really, at this point, hope that we would see some European aliens, but sorta, kinda, not really. We meet Susan Taylor, who is a producer, director, and most important a crop circle researcher. And she talks about known sites in the area such as Stonehenge and Silbury Hill. Taylor seems to hint that this area would have a denser collection of ritual sites compared to other parts of the UK. Maybe, but not, not to, to the extreme at least. We then move on to what, as soon as I saw her title, uh, I assume what we would talk about, 1978. This area was the site for a controversy that persists until today. And it's, of course, crop circles. So let's see what we have here. They parallel this to the Nazca lines, of course, since it's only visible from the air. And so is mostly the Karen Abbas giant. But I don't hear talking about that figure here. Not sure what it would symbol in that case. Human booty call. I'm not sure. We then have our on-call folklorists that talk a bit about the moving devil who was an occurrence in... A brief mention in England, and I can see why they would want to use this. Uh, it would be a way to say, hey, look, this has been going on since the 1600 CE. But the story is not the patterns or something like that appeared in the fields. No, that the devil apparently came up and moved the field in a night. So no patterns, it's just a moved field, harvest field, done over the night, and it was the work of the devil. But sure, a crop circle enthusiasts have tried to tie this little story to the UFO lore. And they continue to talk a little bit about crop circles and then UFO enthusiasts flock to the area. And each year the patterns have become more intricate. And they also show the Westbury white horse on the screen. I assume that the people wanted to tell their alien overlords about the nice horse they saw the other day. Maybe. Again, not the giant. Not sure why. So why England? Was it a way to contact us or is it associated with Stonehenge? And according to Childress, they choose sites in this area because it has a strong earth energy connected to the sites. So it would be signals and ancient writings. We have Taylor again, the crop circus takes us back to a time where science and spirit was together and we were all whole. Yeah, I'm not sure there, to be honest. We have Linda 
Hau again. We met her earlier a few times actually. And she is scared when she sees this circle. Our entire relationship with the universe and quantum physics in all of its complexities have been pushed hard by crop formations alone. So scientists, according to show, have struggled to find an explanation for the phenomenon until 1991 when two pranksters stepped forward, Doug Bauer and Dave Shorley. But some researchers are skeptical of how two elderly men could do this. Taylor even called this a disinformation campaign, forgetting that they actually were not always old. They just old then. Um, And remember that it all started in 1976 when they are quite a lot younger than they were then at least. And this still pops up today all over the globe. Some might be done by pranksters, they admit that, but the prankster circles are sloppy and easy to spot. Expect that the most intricate are made by an artist actually specialized in this called Johan Lundberg. But after studying soil samples and grain dispersion patterns in the disturbed farmland, researchers concluded that this would be impossible for all of these designs to be man-made. This is brought up, but nothing more. And then they move on to William Levengood, who claims that these circuits were made by spinning plasma vortex. Again, they don't tell you the evidence for this. They just state it and you should just accept it. Because we said so. I assume. We continue with Taylor claiming that in the real circus they have these strange things happening like battery dies or cell phone who don't get reception or turns off. You know, spooky things. <laughs> yeah. yeah, things that happen to technology most of the times. We just remember them more often in spooky places usually. Yeah, but how come in and try to explain this with, uh, might it be time travelers, spirits from another dimension, or advanced intelligence? That's not even in this galaxy because that's our only options. Or two elderly gentlemen making patterns in a field with simple survey tricks and a board. And we leave that part of the story hanging right there because we will move on even further back in time. To a simpler time, to 1924. And to beliefs, and of course, when I say beliefs and 1920s, you will probably go, I know, I know where this is going. And you might be correct. We are going to talk about Michael Hedges and the Hedges skull. That inspired that very unfortunate fourth Indiana Jones movie. Did you know they're making a fifth? (laughs) I'm a bit scared, but at the same time, can they make it worse? I just came to think about the South Park episode (laughs) where George Lucas and Steven Spielberg are doing unmentionable things towards poor Indy. Yeah, I'm starting to get that feeling, but I think I read somewhere that Spielberg would not be part of the movie. I might need to double check that, but anyway, I digressed quite a lot there. We meet Bill Howman, who tells the story of Anna Hedges. And especially on how she found it that 
They were out on a dig site in Belize and she climbed up upon a pyramid and found a little hole. And she looked down into the hole and she saw something shimmering. And she was lowered into the hole and when she came up she had a crystal skull in her hand. And we move on to Philip Coppens who claimed uh, that this is the only crystal skull who is anatomically correct except that it lacks suitors. So sutures are the little lines on the cranium. You have usually three of them from when the brain, or not the brain, the, the cranium grows together. It solidifies. So in young people, these seams or sutures are usually not open, but a lot softer, giving the skull a bit more room to grow as the brain does. Anyway, but... This skull lacks suture, so whoever carved it must have known that the creature was not born or the sutures were too hard to make for them. I'm not sure. And they claim that local tribes thought that their gods had returned, the high priest put the skull in the altar, and the Mayan elders thought that 13 skulls were buried around the earth, and seven of them have been found. We have a Sherry Whitfield, who is one of the caretakers of the skull, claiming that the quartz that it's made of is so high in density and the frequency uh, that it has to be for another plane. And the native people took care of it because they could feel this energy. Again, we have this, maybe we shouldn't go with the native people that are more in touch with the Mother Earth kind of vibe is it sounds quite bad today to be honest so what are the origins for the skull scientists actually proved that the skulls at both a few museums especially the british museums are not real pre-columbian artifact and could the hedges be fake and the show then talk about some tests made by a frank dorland in the 1960s and the show wants it or wants you to think that Dorland is part of the Hewlett Packard company. And Frank Dorland, who was an engineer, did some unspecified tests at the HP lab, but he is not a part of HP, and HP was not really a big part of this. They just got to borrow one of their laboratories. They also forget to mention that Dorland is a crystal healing proponent. I would say it might color his his uh, conclusion, especially during this time when the hedges who were still alive back then uh, didn't allow the skull to be tested with the modern equipment, which is quite good to know, especially when they claim that it was tested and proven real. There's also claims that the temperature is always the same. It doesn't matter if it's heated or chilled. And it's important, especially to the AA proponents, that it's carved against the lines of the crystal. Not sure where any of this really comes from. I'm not sure where any of this comes from so far, to be honest. But Coppens feel that established academics are not using all the available evidence and that this have ruined their conclusions. Since we weren't allowed to test it for quite some time, we didn't have all available evidence. And even so, we it's been quite established that the skull was bought, bought, yes, bought, uh, by Hedges from an art dealer 
by the name of Cindy Burney at a Sotheby's auction on October 15th in 1943. And we can quite confidently say, well, with this in mind, that the skull, as the other so far, is a modern creation. As I said, for a long time we were not allowed to do tests with modern equipment, but 2007, 2008, there, uh, the Hedius has both passed, and one of the caretakers actually took it to the Smithsonian's, and there they did a SEM study, and they could actually prove that this skull is completely a modern creation. But we have Sherry Whitfield, one of the caretakers in 2010, not thinking that anybody would knew about this study, who again came out before this episode, that uh, the skulls weren't actually created by aliens. That would be ridiculous. Uh, it was created by people who hold the messages from the aliens. So it would be coded into the skulls, basically. And Whitfield continues, in the stories there are 13 skulls, and when all of them come together, there will be a change in the world. George will come in and have a different take on it. He claims that there's 12 worlds out there, and we are the 13th planet. And our planet is planet of the children. And if you would combine in 13 skulls, we get all the info about the other worlds. So then we have Childress chiming in and he contradicts Giorgio a bit, who again uh, contradicted Whitfield in a sense. Uh, but Childress say that all the skulls have this information stored in them. And since IBM has proved that quartz can store millions of gigabytes of information, and if we could read this, and especially if we could bring all the skulls together, they would start to interface and connect and uh, duplicate the information to each other somehow. For the quartz storage capacity, the closest thing I could find is 5D optical data storage. So in this technology, you use a nanostructured glass to permanently write data into the what they call crystals. And one of these crystals could store up to 360 terabytes of data. It's quite impressive, except the data can't be rewritten, but useful to store large quantity of databases for the future on. Anyway, they then move on to talk how skulls are important to the Mayan. Yep, they had human sacrifice and skulls, quite a lot of them, but it's not anything weird and they don't really dig deeper. They just say, look, Mayan has skull, here's a crystal skull. Somebody said that they found it in Mesoamerica, therefore it's true, I think. The connection is at least to them, but as I said, we've, we're quite sure that all of these crystal skulls are forgeries, or not really forgeries, but they are made at a later point. I don't think the intention was for it to be part of a scam, but they ended up there. So, if extraterrestrial beings exist, where are they? And they then go on to talk about what they call the most leading scientist in the 20th century, Enrico Fermi. And sure, we have... He did a lot of important things and things 
associated to Manhattan Project and other, but we meet Paul Davis, who is a ther- theoretical physicist, uh, who is basically explaining the Fermi paradox. Basically, that if we have all of these alien civilization out there, where are they and where's the evidence? And we have John A. Ball, who is repeating the Fermi paradox. And that Fermi's paradox is a way to explain the lack of evidence of aliens despite the mathematical probability of their existence. And we have also uh, Michael J. Crow, who's a professor emeritus. They don't really specify, but I think it was in... He's a physicist too there, but he's basically talking about the SETI projects and how it haven't yielded any much evidence and how it would actually sort of confirm the Fermi paradox. So so all three sounds like a normal scientist, right? Nothing really strange so far, to be honest. But a few of them doesn't really fit. And if you're really deep in, really into the deep end of alien theories, you might have recognized uh, a few of the names. So John A. Ball has come up with his own theory to, uh, as a rebuttal to Fermi's paradox, and he called that the Sue hypothesis. So basically is that we at planet Earth live in a zoo area that the alien has closed off and is living alone. So we could develop at our own pace. And I didn't really see this from the start either. <laughs> but Michael Crow chimes in and he's a part of the zoo hy- or team zoo hypothesis too. And he comes in and try to add things but basically repeat what Ball just said. They were basically animals at the zoo. Linda Howells comes in and says that we're, we're on a petri dish being studied and not intelligent enough to eavesdrop on the observers. And then from this move on to talk about Lagrange points named after, after Joseph Louis Lagrange, who was a mathematician and astronomer in the 1700 CE. Except that we looked into this point and, well, if the alien space stations aren't invisible, I guess we would have seen them by now. Or maybe the claim is that the space stations are invisible and we can't see them. But the aliens would hide in this Lagrange point because scientists have said that that would be the most efficient place to stay if you would orbit Earth. We then move on to the jungle hypothesis. Ball again. If you go to the jungle where there's a millions of ants, there's the chance that one of them would see a human is really slim. So the ball, so ball claims that we have not met aliens since the chances are too slim. And all of these are basically different variations of a special pleading, basically. We can't have aliens who constantly visit us and leave these vague clues about it and then say that they're avoiding us. Therefore, we don't have evidence. This part, again, don't really fit with the rest of the episode and don't really make that much sense. 
especially when you think about what they've said so far with all the evidence we have with the aliens visiting us constantly. <laughs> but Howell comes in and trying to solve this by saying that the aliens used to visit us, but lately they, they don't want to because they think we need to grow up. And the narrators realize that, well, this maybe is a bit too weird. So he move on that summarized that they, we have these theories that the aliens keeping the distance. But what if they didn't? What if they integrated into the society? And I sort of wonder, will we meet the man in turquoise himself? And no, it did not get crazier at the last minute. It would have been fun, though. They would have... It feels as they've hinted towards David Icke a few times now, at least. But they basically drops it there. They're just hinting at it. Maybe there's all around us. But they're now coming into the last minute here. And according to the ancient alien theorist, the alien may have come here for many reasons. To mine, to breed, explore, or conquer. Except they, if they conquer, they did it quite lazily, I would say. Giorgio Giorgio chimes in, it would be sad if we thought that we were the only species to explore the galaxy. Childress is going to end it with a bang here, so hold on to your seat, they will squeeze in a bit of crazy at least. Many believe that it only happened in the past, but there is evidence that they never left. That they have bases under the ocean and in the mountains. In South America, it's strong evidence that UFO comes out of lakes such as Lake Titicaca, where there's, there's strong evidence that there is an underwater base. He then continuing, quote, The moon would have been a natural stop to Earth, and then NSA claims that it's naturally hollow. During the Apollo mission, the command model crashed into the moon and then NASA said it, said it rang like a bell. Bottomless craters were the, uh, are the entrance to the moon. The moon is an enigma. Was it brought from another solar system? Biologists say that life could not start without the moon. And according to Childress, it's proven that the moon is an alien base. You know, just like the Death Star from Star Wars. Or that Nazi movie, what's it called? Dark Side of the Moon? Oh, it was a long time I saw that one. No, not Dark Side, Iron Sky. Yeah, that was a long time ago. So basically, Iron Sky. And alright, NASA should not maybe have said that the moon rang like a bell. And I seem to regret that phrasing now, to be honest. But no, the moon is not hollow and we have quite a good understanding of the moon's geology. And the moon is basically more dense than Earth, so I'm not sure how they really get this, except for that little quote from NASA, uh, unfortunately. Linda Howell then closes this episode out with the following quote. The government is suppressing alien visitation today. Oof. And that was something, to be honest, I'm I'm not sold yet to the ideas presented in this episode. It felt a bit brushed, to be honest, in a way, and as they added a lot of fillers just to get to the one hour, 30 minute mark. Because did we really need to repeat the Huang Di and talk about the pyramids again? But again, a different theory. 
all of them are supposedly true, uh, which don't really add up. And this part, they didn't really add much to the theory or the evidence, really. A vague support and filler, I'd say. And if I would put a rating, I would give the information provided in, in this episode 2 out of 10 travels. The fun rating was a three, 3 out of 10 travels. It was not super exciting, to be honest, this one. Let's hope for a more interesting and coherent episode next time. Remember to leave a positive review anywhere you can, such as iTunes, Spotify, or to your friend at the trench. Remember to visit diggingupancientaliens2.com to find some more info about me and the podcast. You also find me on most social media sites, and if you have comments, corrections, suggestions, or want to write an email in all caps, You can find my contact info at the website. And we have some great news coming up. We will, this maybe isn't great, but we will have the podcast bi-weekly instead of weekly, just to get some more time. And we have some actually interesting guests appearing. I will be more precise when I actually have recorded and have everything ready. Uh, But we'll be really excited and I really hope you will enjoy it. So until next time. Keep shoveling that science. Have a great one. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode. Remember that we have a subscription going on. You can become a patron or other subscriber for as little as $2.50 per episode. Go to diggingupancientaliens.com support. That is, go to diggingupancientaliens.com support to read more information and sign up right there. 